as we begin this morning, I want you to think about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is unlike any other religion in the world. Unlike anything else. Every other religion in the world weighs its reward on the work of the follower, the merit of the, the one who was following. Did they do enough good works? Did they do enough good deeds? Are they worthy of a reward? Do you know Christianity is the complete opposite of that? It's completely the opposite. Christians are guaranteed a reward not based upon what they have done, but based entirely upon what Christ has done. Not based upon their personal worthiness, but based upon the worthiness of Christ. There's nothing else like that. In most people's minds, it wouldn't make sense that our reward would be based upon somebody else. Think of Christ. He is one of infinite worth. And those who place their trust in him, those who receive him, they receive all of him, including all of his infinite worth. So Christianity is not based upon the believer's work. It's based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who was fully man, he was fully God. He came to live a perfect life in our place so that he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice in our place, being our substitute. That he would take upon himself the wrath that's rightly due to us, that he would pay the full penalty on our behalf. There's nothing else in the world like that. Christianity is unlike anything else. It's all based upon what he has done. He paid our debt so we could go free. He paid the full penalty of sin so we could be forgiven of all sins. Church, that's past, that's present, that's future sins. Complete forgiveness. This is Christ. There was this great exchange where our sin was imputed to him, but his righteousness was imputed to us. What a deal. At least for us. What a gracious thing. What a gracious God. What a wonderful Savior. And then after dying on the cross, he rose three days later to prove that he had authority and power over sin and death. We have a sure promise in Christ. Christianity based entirely on the work of Jesus Christ. And it's to be received by those who believe. When we began our study in the book of John, back in chapter 1, verse 12, we read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who would believe. This morning, my aim this morning, one, is not to preach so long that people fall out of a windowsill and fall asleep and die. But I'm pumped up right now. This morning, my aim is that you, without a shadow of a doubt this morning, would know that you are Christ. Without a shadow of a doubt, without any concern, without any... Am I really a Christian? I want you to know before you leave here this morning who you are in Christ. I want you to know there's security in Christ. That there's a blessed assurance of eternity that only comes through Christ. This morning, if you're taking notes, the title of the message is Blessed Assurance. Let's pray that God would bless his word this morning. Father, we thank you that we now open up your word. And God, we pray that your spirit would empower the going forth of your word, that you would accomplish all that you have purposed for it to do in our lives and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the job for us this morning is we have a lot of context to get through. 
So we're going to go through and do an overview through this context. We're going to read it together first. I'll go over it with you, and then we'll come back and look at three points when we dial this in. Okay, so we're going to be here for a little bit. So everybody just loosen up a little bit. All right? Open up your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Picking up where we left off last time, and I might be preaching for last time and this time, so we're making up for it. John chapter 10, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read through this context through the end of the chapter. We read starting in chapter chapter 10, verse 19. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At, the t- at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What do you see over and over in the text? As we go through this gospel of John, you see Jesus up in front of people proclaiming himself as the son of God, the savior of the world, the seeking savior who came to save those which were lost. And what do you see as the response of many of the people? Rejection. Rejection. And we pick up with rejection. We see there's division being stirred up as we begin this text this morning. Now, we've seen it says the division stirred up again. We've seen that over and over in this gospel. Back in chapter 7, verse 43, Jesus teaches, and then there's division among the people over him. Again, in John chapter 9, Jesus is teaching, and there's division over him. People are being stirred up, and there's constant division. Again, here in verse 19, if you look at it, it says there was division among him because of these words. What words? We'll have to backtrack in the chapter a little bit. Jesus had just taught in John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Skip down to verses 14 through 18. He said, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not in this fold, I must bring them also, and they listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is teaching over and over again. And every time he comes and he preaches truth to them, there is division amongst them. And a common response, as we'll see here, is they say he has a demon. We've heard that before. They don't know what to do with him. They say, well, you know, he must be insane. He, he just has a demon. And they do it again here. But some said, well, you know, can, can somebody who has a demon open the eyes of the blind? Demons can't do that. Only God can do that. So there's divisions stirring. People are seeing different things. Then as we continue through this text this morning, John transitions in verse 22. Look at verse 22 in your Bibles. Some, some time has gone by. It's now winter. It's during this feast of dedication, he writes. This feast is also known as Hanukkah. Many of you have heard of Hanukkah. Or, or the Feast of Lights. It's to commemorate when the Israelites had victory over a Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody ever heard this guy? Bad dude. About 170 B.C., this guy, Syrian king, takes over Jerusalem. And the first thing he wants to do is he wants to oppress the Jews and take over and just pretty much stomp out Judaism. And he goes into the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar, which if you know anything about Judaism, desecrates the temple. He then sets up an idol of Zeus inside of the temple. And he goes on brutally oppressing the Jews until 164 B.C. when they finally had a revolt, an uprising, and they took back the temple. This feast they're celebrating commemorated that. They're taking back that temple. They're now celebrating. It's not a commandment of God. God said, do this and celebrate. They're celebrating their own victory of history. We got the temple back, and that's what they're celebrating here, this feast of dedication. In verse 22, it refers to Jesus being in the colonnade of Solomon. He purposely writes that that is a covered walkway. It's not an open area, most likely because of the winter, the weather. He's now in a covered area, which many of you know in the book of Acts, when the Christians came back to preach. That's where they were preaching. Some of your Bibles say Solomon's porch, the colonnade of Solomon, same place. It's a covered walkway. Then in verse 24, look at verse 24 with me. The Jews gather around Jesus, and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Isn't that like a perfect setup? I mean, you think that's it. They're ready. This is the question. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I mean, it sounds like a legitimate inquiry to me. They're saying, look, if it's you, tell us. But Jesus was able to discern something different. He was able to discern the motive of the question, that they're not sincerely looking for truth. They're looking to trap him in his words. So they have reason to arrest him and to have him killed. And he responds to them in verses 25 through 30. And he starts off by reminding them that he's already told them. He says, I've already told you already said these things. Remember back in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Church, that's pretty direct. It doesn't get much more clear than that. And then in John chapter 8, verse 58, 
Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he's always existed. He is God. He's already declared these things. And then he goes on in this text, and he talks about his works. He says, look, my works, they bear witness of me. Think of Nicodemus. Do you know why Nicodemus came to Jesus? Remember John chapter 3? What, what, what caused him to want to even seek out Christ? We read in John chapter 3, verse 2, this man being Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All that Jesus did was a witness that the Father had sent him. It was a testimony. We see this throughout this gospel. We read in John chapter 7, verse 31. Many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Jesus is doing all kinds of signs and wonders. And they're seeing him. And people are responding. But then as we saw the division in our text this morning, back in verse 21, we see some people said, well, you know, these are not the words of an oppressed person by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The works he is doing, only God can do that. Only God can heal the blind. The Jews had seen a bunch of signs. We've talked about it before. People say, if you got it, only show me a sign. Guess what? They had them all. They were right before them. Their unbelief was not due to a lack of information. Jesus was right before them. What they lacked was repentance and faith. I love what John MacArthur says on this. John MacArthur says, their unbelief was not due to insufficient exposure to the truth, but to their hatred of the truth and love of sin and lies. They had the truth right before them. It's not like they didn't have the truth and like, well, where's the truth? But they loved sin and they loved lies. We read in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. For whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Church, you have experienced this. If you are a Christian, you are now the light of the world. And you might go into a place where it's dark, meaning the people are acting in lawlessness and wickedness, and they don't want you around. They say, oh, excuse the way I'm behaving, or excuse what I said, or, or anything else. Why are they doing that? Because the light is exposed the darkness. People hate the light. They love the darkness. Jesus continues his response in verses 26 through 30. And we're actually not going to cover these too much right now because that's where we're going to spend the majority of this time this morning. We're going to come back and look at verses 26 through 30. We're going to unpack all of that. But for now, I want you to know the Jews didn't like what Jesus said, but we're going to love it. But they didn't like what he said. As a matter of fact, look at verse 30. Go down to verse 30. Jesus ends what he says. He says, I and the Father are one. Guess what he just called himself? God. Same essence. He says, we're one. He proclaimed himself to be God. And how do you think the Jews are going to respond? Look at verse 31. They pick up stones. Why are they picking up stones? Because they want to kill him. For what he said, they want to kill him. And we learn down in verse 33, the reason they want to kill him, because they said he's blasphemed. They say, you being a man, make yourself God. 
and they picked up stones to kill him. I love Jesus' defense. Skip down to verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, look, if you don't believe me, that, that's, that's fine. But believe at least the works you're seeing. I'm doing them right before you. Look at verse 37, 38. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He goes, look, you can deny my words, but you can't deny what you see. You can't deny what's been done before your very eyes. And yet, they reject him because they love darkness. And like before, they respond in the same way. We see in verse 39, they try to arrest him. This is it. They're done with him, try to arrest him. And just like we've seen before in the Gospel of John, by God's providence, Jesus is able to escape. Now, Jesus is just one man. And there are a whole lot of them, of them coming after him. But in God's providence, it's not his time yet. And Jesus is able to escape. And then we finish up our, our context this morning. It says, after that, Jesus went down. Look at verse 40 to 42. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What was the testimony? His works. He said, John spoke about this man, said what he would be doing. Jesus comes back in and says, you've done exactly what John said. And many believed in him there. As we look at this, know that Jesus' ministry was not easy. This actually concludes Jesus' public ministry. This is it right here. There's his ministry. Think about those who have followed and those who have left. Jesus has fed the multitudes thousands at a time who would come and, and want food. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Come and eat of me. And then we read in John 6, verse 66, they all left. They didn't like the teaching. Said, who, who could hear this? And they abandoned him. Jesus ministered three years, and this is what we have left. There's still division. There's still those who look at him and completely reject him. And church, here we are 2,000 years later, and the response is still the same. Jesus, the name of Jesus will still stir a room. And there are those that quickly cling and love it and exalt it, and then those that hate it and get angry with just the name of Jesus. So much so that his name has been turned into a curse word. It's very sad. This morning I told you we're going to camp on Jesus' response earlier in this text. His reply when they said, if you're the Christ, then just tell us plainly. Let's look, let's look in depth this morning at the way he responds. And what we're going to see this morning is that those who have placed their trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, they have been elected, they've been sanctified, and they're eternally secure. So this morning, if you're taking notes, three things. I'll give you three points of doctrine this morning. Ready? Going deep. First one's called election. Second one is called sanctification. And the third one is called perseverance of the saints. Three points we're going to dig in this morning. First one, election. Open your Bibles, look at John chapter 10, Jesus' response starting in verse 25. When I read this earlier, I heard one of you even say, wow, as Jesus said this. Starting in verse 25, Jesus answered them. He says, I told you, and you did not believe, or you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you, look at verse 26, you do not believe because you're not, not among my sheep. 
sit there and hold on to that for a second. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. All from, from the beginning of the Gospel of John, all the way through the Gospel, we read that salvation is the work of God. That God's hand is from the beginning of salvation all the way till the end of it. That he begins it and he finishes it. We read in John chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which means salvation is not based upon how much you can strive towards it, how much you want it, what family you grew up in, what country you grew up in. It doesn't matter of you. It only matters of God. That you must be born of God. We later study in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus, absolutely. There's a work of God. You know, so many times we think, look what I've done. Look, I've chosen Jesus. I picked him. And the reality, church, is he chose us. Man, if we can get that shift in our mind, oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you chose you. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, after a bunch of preaching had gone on, it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many that God has chosen, they were the ones that believed. They were the ones that responded to this truth. One of the hardest things people wrestle with, Romans chapter 9, speaking of Jacob and Esau. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, says, though they were yet or not yet born, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God's choice. God's choice. You know, the, the illustration goes back to a, a potter and clay. Can a clay tell the potter what to do? No, the clay just gets molded and shaped as the potter chooses. God chose us. The very term election, the doctrine of election, here's a definition. An act of God before creation in which he chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Church, I will tell you as your pastor, I don't get it. I don't get it. But what I do know is what the Scripture says. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And it pleased him to choose us. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm not going to stand up here and lecture and try to be a professor and try to convince you of this. I'm going to tell you it's what Scripture says. And that once we get our minds wrapped around it, oh, man, what a glorious and mighty God. What a good and gracious God. As a matter of fact, I want you to see three points about this this morning. If you're taking notes, three ways election is presented in the New Testament. Number one is it serves as a comfort for believers. Election serves as a comfort for believers. In our public reading this morning, we read this. I'm going to read it again. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Many of you have this memorized. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He began it, and he's going to finish it. There's comfort that God is in control. He is sovereign over all things, that though I might not understand why this situation is the way it is, that I can trust in a sovereign God. That the doctrine of election that God has chosen me, he's chosen me for this very time, for this very situation, for this thing I'm going through, God knows it, and God will hold me fast through it. He'll hold me fast. He's going to use it not only for my good, he's going to use it for his glory. First thing about election, it serves as a comfort for believers. From eternity to eternity, God has acted with the good of his people in mind. And if it's from eternity past to eternity future, guess what that includes? The present. Right now. That he's working in our circumstances for our good right now. Church, you don't have to make it feel good. You don't have to pretend like, oh, this feels so good. You have to know it's good. There's a difference. A, a feeling is where you get the warm bubbly. You're like, oh, I'm, I feel this is exciting. There are trials and sufferings that come in our life that don't feel good. But because of this doctrine of election, I know God has chosen me. I know God from eternity past to eternity future has chosen me. I know he's going to work it out for my good and his glory. That's comforting. Second thing about election, it promotes praise to God. I want you to think about this. Jesus says, I chose you, you didn't choose me. If he said just the opposite, he said, hey, congratulations, you did the best thing you've ever done in your life, you chose me. Guess what we get to do? I'm awesome. I did the best thing I've ever done. I chose him. But he says, no, I chose you. It promotes the praise of God. We read this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. We read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, ready, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did he do all that? Before the foundations of the earth? Or the foundations of the world? So that he would be praised. That we would respond in awe to this glorious God. Look, I've said it before, but you know you and I know me. And if I was God and I had looked down upon me and seen my rebellion and seen things that I did that I knew better, I like to go like this, bink, but I don't know if it works like that. But I surely wouldn't have chosen me. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, you wouldn't have chosen you either. But because of his glorious grace, because of the praise of his name, Again, a few verses later in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. So that we were first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory. That we would be people that are in awe that God chose me. Praise him. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
Paul writes this to those in Thessalonians. God has chosen you. Again, the second letter to them, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to the praise of his glory. We would praise him. The doctrine of election should increase our praise of God, that we would praise him for our salvation, that it would diminish any pride in us to think that somehow we've earned or deserved this that we would be in awe of who he is. It would elevate praise. The third thing it will do, the doctrine of election, it's an encouragement to evangelism. It's an encouragement to evangelism. Do you know who's called to evangelize? That's a good answer. We all are. We all might not be gifted at it, but we're called to go and share the good news, to tell others about Christ. But how many times do we get to, well, people just don't listen. People don't respond to the gospel. We, we live in a postmodern era, and, and people are just, you know, it's this progressive movement, and nobody wants to hear about Jesus anymore. Think about the doctrine of election. God has predestined people to hear and to receive that good news. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those who God has selected, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, I know that God has elected some to hear, to receive. And because of that, I forsake everything else that I would go and I would tell, I will proclaim. Church, look at Jesus. Talk about a prince of preachers, the best preacher ever. Not Charles Spurgeon, but Jesus Christ. He's the best. And what happened when he preached? Some rejected him openly, violently rejected, and some received because the doctrine of election gives us an encouragement to evangelize, to go in that God has elected, that how will they hear unless one is sent? We must open our mouths that they would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and know that there's encouragement. Election's a guarantee that some, there will be some success in evangelism, that God has already predestined it. As we talk about election, I'm not going to go into it too much, but where, where comes the responsibility of human responsibility? You know, we, we see in all these verses the divine sovereignty of God, that God has chosen. But we also see Jesus tell people about their unbelief, about their love for sin, their love of darkness, about their rejection to the truth. We see that people must call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus tells people to come to me, to receive me, to eat of me, to drink of me. There's a response but know that response must first be initiated by our Lord. But there is responsibility on us to respond, to respond to the calling. We must come to Jesus. We must call on his name to be saved. We must believe in him, trust in him, hope in him. Second thing this morning, sanctification. Sanctification. Have you ever wondered, does everybody who professes the name of Christ make it to heaven? I mean, some of you know the answer. Let me just shout it out. But some people wonder that. Like, everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, will they be saved? You know, Jesus said on the day of judgment, there'll be many that come before him. Many, he said, not a few. He said there'll be many, and they'll call him Lord. And they'll testify to you in a bunch of good works in his name. 
And he'll respond by saying, depart from me, I never knew you worked of lawlessness. They knew facts. They knew the truth, but they never responded to it. They tried to earn it on their own. Sanctification shows us the working of God within us. John chapter 10, verse 27, continuing our text. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's a huge part right there. They follow me. You see, there are a lot of people that can read the Scripture, know the truth about what Jesus said. They can even testify and say, yeah, I believe that, that he was the Christ, that he died on a cross for me, that he rose from the dead. But genuineness of salvation comes out here. This they follow me in first obedience. There's a form of obedience that comes in being a genuine follower of Christ. The Bible says that a believer, someone who has genuine belief, is a new creation in Christ. They've been filled with the Spirit of God. And now they have a new heart with new desires. That should be known of all of us. If we profess the name of Christ, there should be the presence of his Spirit within us, the presence of new desires, ones that are opposite of the flesh. Now, before we get twisted on us, understand that we still have flesh. We still have fallen to pray flesh that likes corrupt things. And there should be a battle going on within the believer. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's called warfare. Look, when you're just walking in darkness... There is no spirit leading you towards righteousness. You are loving, living in your sin. But when the spirit of God comes and dwells in you, now there's a desire, a pursuit for righteousness. But there's also in this flesh a desire for those things that are wretched and lawless. And Paul says, you've been given the spirit of God. Walk by that spirit. You walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So this idea of sanctification, this point number two, let me give you a definition. Sanctification, a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So less like the enemy of our soul and more like Jesus. A work of God and man. The same writer John in his letter of 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Let me explain that real quick. Because all of us right now go, oh, woe is me then, because we all keep sinning. So where it keeps on sinning means practice, to continue to practice the same sin. To be in bondage to that sin, to continue over and over and think it's all fine. No one who has a seed of God can continue living in a lifestyle of sin to be known by that sin. Oh, look, there's the liar. There's the adulterer. There's the fill in the blank. That because of God's spirit that's put in us, we no longer can continue to remain in those things. Many of you are familiar with Romans chapter 6. And I told you I was going to preach for three days, so we're going to cover a little bit of it. Romans chapter 6 is an in-depth chapter of sanctification, of putting to death sin. 
and walking in holiness. Starting in verse 11, read with me. Paul writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, or excuse me, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. We are now free in Christ. We're no longer in bondage and enslaved to sin, but we're free in Jesus. We continue to be conformed to the image of Christ day by day, becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That sanctification is this progressive movement where God is working in us, that we are cooperating with the Spirit of God in us and looking more and more like Jesus each and every day. Look, if you think back to the day that God drew you to faith and repentance in Christ and think about things you used to think of, the things you used to engage in, hopefully they're not the same as they are now. Hopefully they have changed. There's evidence of God's Spirit within you. Philippians chapter 2 Starting in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Stop there. If you just quote that part, it sounds like salvation's up to you. It's based upon your works. But you've got to keep reading. There's a comma there. There's a comma. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must cooperate with the Spirit. That's the walk in the Spirit. That it's God's Spirit in us that's driving us towards holiness, to want to follow Christ. Absolutely. There's a helper. Sanctification, church, realize this. It's never completed in this life. Sanctification is never completed in this life. But yet, while it will never be attained in this life, it should never stop increasing in this life. It should be growing. Holiness should be growing in our lives. Sanctification is promoted by some disciplines of grace. Things like Bible reading, Bible meditation, prayer, worship, witnessing, Christian fellowship, self-discipline, and self-control. Those all are walking in step with the Spirit. Real quick, looking three ways sanctification is presented in the New Testament. One, we know it's God's will for you, sanctification. Paul writes very clearly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he speaks specifically of sexual morality, to abstain from it. Look, the world says it's okay to hook up with people and do all this kind of stuff. Not God. He says you're to walk in holiness. Second thing, sanctification, it's evidence of a genuine believer. Second point, it's evidence of a genuine believer. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, John writes, Everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. It means there's a pursuit of holiness. There's a pursuit of purity. It's evidence that God's Spirit's within us, that he's working us through this process of sanctification. And lastly, it's our aim. It is our aim. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. You know, it's interesting when you, you look at some of these programs, like, you know, there's 10 steps to recovery. You know how many steps Jesus gives you? One step. And that step is the other direction. It's like this. Whoop. This way. It's repent. Just repent and believe. It's one-step process. Our aim is to cleanse ourselves from all things. Guess what? If you do not have Christ, you're not going to have much success. You might have a few days. You might have a few months. But you're not going to have a lifetime. How is it that some people come, receive Christ, and all of a sudden they're delivered from a lifestyle of drugs, of alcohol, of whatever it is, like that? What was that? What happened? Sanctification has begun in their lives. The Spirit of God is working within them. All right, let's finish up with our third thing this morning, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. In our text this morning, the last verse we're looking at, John chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Church, stop right there. The very definition of eternal life, that he gives you eternal life, how long does that last? Forever. So can it stop? No. If you have a lifetime warranty on an appliance, it's for the lifetime of that appliance. You never stop and worry, I wonder if my lifetime warranty no longer is valid. It's a lifetime warranty. Jesus, I give you eternal life. That lasts forever. It's not to be revoked. It can't by its very definition. It's eternal life. He says they will never perish. In the Greek, it's really saying they will certainly never or they'll never, never perish. He's making a point here. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one perseverance of the saints. The Bible says if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And it says the same God who has begun your salvation will complete it. And that although times might feel rough and times will feel hard, that he will hold you fast through it. That he will get you through it. John's already spoken of this back in John chapter 6. Uh, he's already recorded this. John chapter 6, verse 39 through 40. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What do you think nothing means? Nothing. All that's been given to him. He's not going to lose nothing. All the way to the day that we're glorified or raised up. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Church, if that didn't come true, if that doesn't come true, guess what? Jesus is a liar. And we know better than that. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. He said, all the Father has given me, they will be raised up. Here's a definition for those of you that are writing stuff down. Perseverance of the saints. Here's what it means. Perseverance of the saints. It is the doctrine that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. You see both sides of that? How do you know someone was truly born again? Because we'll see God in them persevere all the way to the end. They'll make it. 
which will testify they were truly born again. As Baptists, we often hear a different term called eternal security. As a matter of fact, if you come on Wednesday to our Bible study, we're going to be talking about this on Wednesday in our Bible study. But eternal security sometimes can get sloppy when people just loosely throw out, once saved, always saved. What does it mean to be saved? What does that look like? We're going to talk about that shortly. Keep that in your mind. What does it mean to be saved? We'll get there as I go through these three points. Last three, about what the New Testament says about the perseverance of the saints. Number one, believers have no more condemnation. Believers have no more condemnation. Romans 8.1 says there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guess what, church? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear of judgment. You don't have to, to shrink back at the coming of Christ, but you can rejoice because there's no condemnation coming. That the penalty of our sins, past, present, future, have all been paid for by Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. Second thing, believers have a guarantee of eternity, a guarantee. We have the words of Christ we just read, but Paul also writes and says, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit. It's a guarantee. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The guarantee. If the Spirit of God is working in you, the presence of the Spirit of God, you know that you are guaranteed. Perseverance of the saints, you will make it. And lastly, something very closely related to that, believers are secure in Christ. That's what Jesus just said in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's security. There's no reason to fear or fret. The perseverance of, of the saints, it's a glorious truth. It's a truth that applies to every Christian who has truly been born again. I talked about it before. I said, well, how do you know someone's actually born again? How do you know if you're actually born again? You know, you know, Paul had written to the believers in church said, hey, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. And you know what we don't often do? Examine ourselves. We don't like to do that. It's easier just to buy a cup that says Jesus loves me and just go with that. That's simple. But greater than anything, as your pastor, my primary concern is that you know Christ and are known by him. And then after that is to equip you for the work of the ministry but primarily that you're a Christian, that you're truly born again. You know, so, so people will say, oh, once saved, always saved. But what does it mean to be saved? How do you know if you're truly saved? You know, the worst case scenario is to give yourself false assurance and say, well, I'm saved, I'm fine. I don't need to listen to anything. I don't need to respond to anything. I'm okay. And to find out like many did in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Woe is us if we wait till then. But now is the time for examination, to examine ourselves to see if we're truly born again, to see if there's genuineness of our belief. Does it, let, me, let me put it this way. If someone just says they believe in Jesus, does that guarantee they're going to heaven? Okay, well, you know that answer. So then what does? Because this whole text is about assurance. And now I'm assuring up Doubt. I just stood up doubt that quickly. And guess what? Unless we know how to examine ourselves, that's what's going to happen our whole life. We'll be in doubt. Like, I'm not even certain 
if I'm going to heaven. I'm not even certain if I'm really Christ. And people will time and time again will say, oh, God, you know, just forgive me and come into my heart. And they'll say some sinner's prayer that someone told them to say somewhere. Jesus said, repent and believe. He said, come to me. All right, so let's do a test. Let's ask ourselves three questions. First question, ask yourself this. Do I have a present trust in Christ alone for salvation? Do I have a present trust in Christ alone for salvation? This is not a question of whether you once trusted Christ. It's not whether you once said a prayer or walked an aisle or raised a hand. It is a question about the present. Do you have a present trust in Christ for salvation? To help discern that question, you could ask yourself this. Do I today have trust in Christ to forgive my sins and take me without blame into heaven forever? Do I have confidence in my heart that he has saved me? Think about this. Ask yourself this. If I were to die tonight and stand before God's judgment seat, and if you were to ask me why you should let me into heaven, would I begin by answering some good deeds that I've done, some good deeds that I'm dependent on? Or would I, without hesitation, say that I am depending upon the merits of Christ and am confident that he is a sufficient Savior? That's the first big question. Second one is this. Is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in me? Is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Is there evidence? Many of you are very familiar with Paul the Apostle talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But have you ever used the fruit of the Spirit as an examination tool? The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, genuineness, and, or excuse me, gentleness, and self-control. Now, before we start getting whips and whipping ourselves, say, woe is me, and I don't exemplify all these things at all times in my life, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about exemplifying those in all areas of our life at all times. But are these general characteristics of my life? Ask yourself that. Are they general characteristics? We're not talking about you're perfectly consistent in those at all times, but are they general characteristics of your life? Ask yourself, do I sense these attitudes in my heart? Do I sense these in my heart? Do others, especially those that are closest to me, do they see these things? as general characteristics that are exhibited in my life. You know what's crazy is we come to church on Sunday, and many of us put on our best behavior. We come in, we smile, we say, God bless you, we say, you know, kind things to one another. And it's possible for some of us who drove here on the way here, we're just saying very unkind things in our car. How is that possible? If you're married, it's possible you could be in an argument with your spouse and someone calls and as you're arguing with your spouse, you're like, hello? <laughs> How does that happen? What, what just transpired? So those who are the closest to you are often the ones that best can see what character do you exhibit. And do you see a, a lifelong pattern of growth in your Christian life? You see a pattern of growth. That's our third question this morning. We'll finish with this one. Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? 
Meaning when I look back to, to yesterday, last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, depending on how long you've been a believer, do I see progressive growth in holiness? Peter writes this, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, when virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with good godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Look what he says in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. He's talking about growth, Christian growth. Look, when, when God first saves us and pulls us out of darkness and makes us light, we are considered newborn babes. Think about a baby, baby coming out of the womb. You going to go play baseball with him? No. You might carry him to go to a baseball game, but you are not going to expect him to get out and pick up a bat and start hitting a baseball. As a matter of fact, you're not going to expect him to get up and start running anywhere. If you remember, if you had a child, that little child, you sat and watched that child for days, for weeks, for months, until that child finally moved and hit like a little doll or something. You're like, oh, there's movement. But it took months to get there. And then you were hoping, just holding, holding him or her up, going, okay, let's start walking. And after a while, I started walking. You went, man, I'm really sad I forced this upon them. <laughs> I wish they'd go back just staying there. But there was progression. And the same thing should happen spiritually to us, that we're growing in our faith, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. So as I look back, am I more loving today than I was last year? Am I more loving today than I was last year? Am I more loving today than I was a decade ago? Do I display more mercy and grace towards others than I did last year or 10 years ago? Am I more patient and kind toward difficult people? You guys hear that one? Am I more patient and kind toward difficult people than I was last year or 10 years ago? Simply put, and you've heard me say it before, if the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't saved you. There should be evidence, this sanctification, this progression of holiness happening in your life. You know, maybe this morning you've examined yourself according to these things, and you go, I don't like this very much because I think I failed this test. And you know, you can fail a lot of tests in, in life, but you can't fail this one. There's a lot of things you could fail at, but you can't fail at knowing Christ and being known by him. He is a good and gracious Savior. There's one thing that we must pass. We must know. But here's the thing. If this morning you look at this test and you go, holy cow, Pastor, the way you put it and those questions you ask, I certainly think I did not pass that. I failed it. Well, here's what I got to tell you. There is really, really good news this morning. Not just good news. It's great news this morning. There's great news. Why? Because Jesus welcomes you unto himself. It's not under the good deeds and the works. He welcomes you to come to him, to receive him. His desire is that you would turn from yourself, repent and turn to him, to receive him and all of him, all of his infinite worth, all of his blessing. Receive all of Christ. 
that you would believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You would trust solely in him and that you would let his spirit begin to lead you in holiness, that you would hear his voice, that you would know him, and that you would follow him. And when you do that, you would know that you are his. There's no more question. There's no more doubt. And that when you're his, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That you are secure in him. Now, for those of us that have examined ourselves, we looked at those questions and we go, I, I think I, I passed this test. I think I passed the exam. Well, you know what our response be? Our response should be, praise the Lord. To the praise of his glorious grace for all that he has done in my life, that he's doing in life, that he will do in my life. But I have a hope that is secure. To rejoice that we are secure in Christ that he will hold us fast, that no matter how hard or difficult life gets, that he will hold on to us and get us through till the end, that nobody can snatch us from his hands. Nobody. No lie of Satan. Nobody can snatch us from his hands, that we are his. Let's pray. Father, what glorious glorious news that we have such a good God, such a gracious Savior, one who would come to seek and save that which was lost. God, all of us who were once blind, God, now can see. We praise you. God, for those of us this morning that thought that maybe we were seeing, but this morning after examining ourselves, think, man, I was still blind. God, I pray your spirit would draw them to yourself that they would come to Christ, that they would receive Christ, that they would trust in Christ, that they would hope in Christ, that they would follow Christ, and that you would receive all the honor and glory, that, God, there would be no longer any doubt of whether or not they're saved or not, but there would be the evidence of your Spirit within them, that they would be, begin to grow in holiness, that they would exalt the name of Jesus. We thank you. You are a gracious and holy God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.